Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beat Me Drash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Are you permitted to lie if the truth might be worse? This is the final part of this series where Dina Weiss talks us through how to have difficult conversations. While the answer to our question from the tradition may be yes, the details of the answer are complicated. Let's listen. We are at the section entitled Truth and Consequences. And whereas the first two lectures were really about unavoidable situations, you know, when somebody passes away, you don't get to choose, right, whether or not um, that person is gone. When you are the person who is tasked with sharing the bad news, even though God was able to pass it off to someone else, generally we do not have the ability to pass it off to someone else. And in those two scenarios, really what we're trying to do is figure out how to do what we must do in the best way. This lecture is a little bit different in that part of the question that we're going to be asking is, well, can we actually try to avoid having certain confrontations, having certain difficult conversations. Specifically, we're going to be asking the question of, may we lie in order to spare somebody else's feelings, spare our own sense of dignity and our own sense of privacy? Can we actually bend the truth? Right When bending the truth will serve some higher purpose. Um, so we're sort of moving um, a little bit from the how to the weather. Or do I actually need to say what it seems like I need to say? Maybe there's a way that I can massage the truth. Maybe there's a way that I can avoid it. Um, and I have to say that I come to this class in particular from a place of this is a lesson that I really need to hear. Just by nature, I am someone who loves telling the truth, loves hearing the truth. I don't really lie well. I <laughs> also don't lie easily. And it's something that actually, as I've gotten older, is a lesson that I've learned that sometimes the truth is not the right path. And sometimes you really do have to maybe not necessarily lie outright, but speak in a way that is obfuscating of the truth or avoiding of the truth in order for things to be more pleasant, in order for people to be more happy, um, and often in order for someone's feelings to be spared. So I'm spoiling, right, the punchline of the lecture, which is, yes, you can, right? According to the rabbis, you can lie um, in order to spare someone's feelings, et cetera, et cetera. But we are going to go a little bit into the sources for this um, and some of the nuances of what is really a very complicated question, right? Whether or not we can sacrifice the truth and in what circumstances we can sacrifice the truth in order to get to this higher goal, what I'm suggesting might be a higher goal of sparing someone's feelings or, as I said earlier, preserving your own dignity. The crux of the conversation in some ways boils down to how we understand one phrase in the Torah where it says, Midvar Sheker Tirchak, someone very helpfully bolded that for you. That person was me. Okay, it says, Midvar Sheker Tirchak, keep far from falsehood. And there's two ways to interpret that. And we're going to see those interpretations very soon. One way is to say, wow. Lying must be so bad because not only does God say, don't lie, but he says, don't even get close to it, right? This is a siyag, this is offense, this is something that 
protecting you and preventing you from even approaching something so horrible and destructive and sinister as lying. That's one way of understanding keep far from falsehood that is actually a stronger statement than do not lie. But the other way of understanding midvar sheker tirchak, keep your distance from falsehood, is that it's actually much softer and more pliable than a straight cut and dry prohibition on lying because it's saying, listen, as a general guideline, it would be better if you would keep far from falsehood. Falsehood is not supposed to be your best friend. You're not supposed to be known as Dina the liar, right? But maybe it's not so simple. And I can't just come out and say, don't lie. Because sometimes you might actually have to lie. So we are going to hear a voice that speaks in the first register, Right, which says that midvar shekar tirchak, stay away from falsehood, is a strengthening of the prohibition on lying. But the balance of the sources, basically everything else we're going to see, is really going to move us towards a more nuanced understanding of the approach to truthfulness um, and really to lying. So what we're going to do first, of course, is we have to base ourselves in the verses. When does lying come up in the Torah? And if you analyze these verses, you'll see that there doesn't seem to be any context where lying, divorced from consequences, is framed as being problematic. By which I mean, if you look at the examples that I'm giving you in Shmod and Vayikra, you'll see that the prohibition against swearing falsely, speaking falsely, are always couched in, um, in judicial situations where your falsehood will actually cause someone harm. There is no place where it just says, you know, you really shouldn't lie, period. Okay, the places where you're not supposed to lie are the places where lying is a type of defrauding of another person, right? And so I would say the real prohibition is not against lying. The real prohibition is against defrauding, right? Is <laughs> against oh, swearing falsely in court. And only as a component right, of trying to take someone else's money improperly are you prohibited from lying. And that opens up for us the possibility right, that if lying is only problematic when it is harmful, right, maybe we can actually say even more strongly when lying is purposive, when it is constructive, when it is helpful, maybe lying is not really that problematic at all. So we're going to quickly just touch on these verses. The first we're going to look at is Lo You shall not bear false witness. Could have been a period there, right? But it's don't bear false witness against your neighbor, right? You are not allowed to testify in a way that is going to harm your neighbor. It has to have a result like don't kill, don't steal, don't um, participate in adultery, right? These are actions with real consequences. Uh, the next verses, if you look at B in that first chart, it says, Lo You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in their lawsuits. Midvar sheker tirchak. Okay, this is the phrase that pays. Keep far from falsehood. This is coming right after a verse that tells you not to pervert justice. Okay, keep far from falsehood and do not kill the innocent. And those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. Okay, when God says, 
keep away from falsehood, the context is the kind of falsehood that is going to be damaging to someone who is innocent, not, at least based on context, the kind of lying that is going to be helpful to someone who is innocent. And the last set of verses we're going to look at um, in Parshat Kiddoshim, Vayikra 19, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another, and you shall not swear falsely. Okay, all of these statements of do not be untruthful, but you continue on, right? And these are part of the list of you shall not defraud your neighbor, you shall not steal, you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer, right? So the placement of these sukim that tell you not to be untruthful, clearly the context where we are talking about this lack of truthfulness is a context where it is going to be exploitative to a worker, it's going to be a form of theft. If it is not exploitative, if it is not a form of theft, then it doesn't seem from the psukim that it is necessarily problematic. Now, that doesn't mean to say, right, that we're now finding a verse that says, thou must tell lies, thou may not tell the truth, right? We're definitely not going that far. Right? But I think it's important to look at the absence, right, of verses that speak to lying that is divorced from a context where it is going to cause harm. Okay. We're looking at the teaching of the Chazonish. Now, the Chazonish is serious man, okay? Well, he passed away, but he was a serious man. Many serious, strong statements have been attributed to him, and this is no exception. The repulsiveness of falsehood, genut hasheker. Okay, so you already know that the Chazon Ish is not in a pro-white lie camp. Okay, he comes out and he says, the repulsiveness of falsehood is not a product of its trickiness. Hamir Mashebo, like when someone uses his falsehood for the sake of a benefit that he hopes will come from tricking his fellow. So essentially, I'm quoting the Chazanish to say exactly the opposite of what I just argued for you from the Psukim. The Chazanish says, when we are told not to lie, it has nothing to do or let's put it this way, it's not limited to any concrete harm that I can see coming out of it, any kind of benefit that I might get from trickery. Rather, even a linguistic change um, that does not serve to exploit, or it is not a type of ona'at dvarim, which is the rabbi's technical language for using exploitative language that gives someone an advantage, like empty chatter, gossip, these can be called lying and is included in the sin of falsehood, okay? Even just using the language of sin of falsehood, it's very extreme. So the Chazon Ish, right, if you were to say, how are you reading Midbar Sheker Tirchak? Stay away from falsehood. He's reading it as, it's not only just a falsehood, right? That's clearly a problem because I know that it leads to or is a form of stealing or causing someone pain. Rather, even falsehood that's innocent, right? He says, no, there's no such thing as a white lie. There's no such thing as a falsehood that's innocent because lying is intrinsically problematic. Okay, so the Chazanish is going to be our representative of the view that telling a lie, even the smallest of lies, is 
intrinsically problematic because falsehood is intrinsically problematic. We're going to look at um, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, who is essentially a contemporary of the Chazonish, and he is going to come for it, to it from the total opposite direction. He's going to say, truth, falsehood, that's not really my concern. Okay, I'm not concerned with the intrinsic truthfulness or falsehoodness of a statement. He says, the truth is those things that match the will of Hashem, that match the will of God, and falsehood, sheker, those are the things that oppose the will of God. Okay, so it has nothing to do with, is this actually, actually accurate? The question that I'm asking when something is about to come out of my mouth is, does this accord with God's will? Or does it not accord with God's will? If I can argue that it accords with God's will, then it is called emet. There is no such thing as truth that exists on its own. What is truth and what is falsehood? We're in the third line in the English um, and the very end of the second line in the Hebrew, mahu emet umahu sheker. At the outset of our education, they led us to understand, right? This is some sort of silly thing that they tell children that the truth is when facts are recounted as they happened and falsehood is when they are distorted. But this is just in simple aspects, right? Life is much more complicated than is this factually accurate or not. But in fact, there are many ways in which the matter is not so. Sometimes it is forbidden to speak matters as they are, like to recount something that may damage a friend without purpose or necessity. And sometimes it is actually necessary to distort, like when the truth will not help and rather will hurt. Okay, now, now he's using truth in the conventional sense, even though he had just said the truth doesn't really exist, right? For when what seems like truth will indeed be falsehood, because it will produce bad results. Rav Eliyahu Dessler's attitude towards truth and falsehood is that the facts are not really strictly relevant, right? What is strictly relevant is whether or not this is what God wants from me. What God wants from me is to make people feel good and not feel bad. So the question of whether, you know, it's actually true that she looks great in that dress or it's actually true that his lecture was brilliant, that's actually not relevant. Right? What's relevant is, is this what the person needs to hear? It turns out that truth is, is that which leads to good and the will of the creator. And falsehood is what gives success to the dealings of the prince of falsehood. Sar hasheker, that is the other side, the sitra achra, the forces of evil, or the Kabbalistic forces of evil. So we have here two diametrically opposed views. One is, I don't care what the circumstances are. Lying is always problematic, and that's it. End of discussion. I'm glad we had this talk. Okay, that's the Chazonish. And the other side of the spectrum, totally opposite side of the spectrum, is Rev. Elio Dessler, who says, I don't know if actually truth and falsehood is such a helpful frame for people to go through their lives with. The much more helpful framework is, is this what God wants? Is this not what God wants? Now, of course, um, Rav Dessler's formulation has a lot of problems, right? First of all, he clearly understands that there is such a thing as truth and falsehood. He just chooses to disregard them. And also, it's kind of a lot easier to know whether something is factually true 
and factually false, than it is to know whether that statement is God's will or not, right? And so you could see that the strength of the Chazan Isha's opinion is that it's very cut and dry and it's very easy to comply with, at least in the sense of understanding. And the Mechtab Meliahu, um, Rav Dessler's position is actually much more difficult to know whether you're actually doing the will of God or whether how convenient that what you want to achieve seems to you to be the will of God at that moment, right? Once we're moving things completely out of the realm of objectivity and into the realm of subjectivity, then things become much harder, then things become much more complex. We are going to try to find ourselves somewhere in the middle, right? But full disclosure, we are really going to be leaning towards Ruf Dessler's perspective, right? Not necessarily that truth and falsehood don't exist and they're not relevant, but to the extent that what might be more important is to ask, well, what are my words accomplishing? Rather than what is the nature of my words? So we're moving down to source C, which is really almost as explicit a statement as you can get. A pro- bending the truth, obscuring the truth statement that you can get. Rav Yehuda said that Shmuel said, it is the practice of the rabbis. Okay, so we're not even really talking about one guy's opinion, quoting one guy's opinion. This opinion is reporting on what is considered to be totally acceptable, regularly done by the rabbis. They would change their language. Mishanu b'milayhu regarding these three things. Okay, it's interesting to me, right, that even the lying that they're doing, they're lying about, right, because they're using a euphemism of, well, they're just changing their language when really they're lying, okay? So there are these three things about which the rabbis would habitually lie. That's how I would translate this in my more strict, more honest way of translating. Learning, masachet, bed, puraya, and hosts, ushbiza. You have to do a little bit unpacking of these categories, which we're going to do right now. Okay, it seems that the first example, learning, might be a little bit of a rabbi-specific uh, category, something that happens much more frequently in the world of the rabbis than might happen in our world. But essentially, if somebody says to you, um, hey, I heard that you were the world's expert in, I don't know, impurities, you're allowed to say the world's expert, even if you are, right? So the, so the example of um, changing your words or lying about learning is that you're allowed to, to lie for the sake of modesty, for the sake of saying, I don't say about myself, right, that I'm the world's foremost expert. And you can see there's this kind of discomfort that's generated when someone's like, hey, I you're a genius. Right? And what are you supposed to respond to that? I am. Here are my SAT scores. Right? Normal people will say, oh, I'm not, the, I'm not that smart. I didn't get into this college or I didn't accomplish XYZ thing. Right? Even if everybody knows that that's a lie, it's appropriate. Right? It's an appropriate lie um, to respond out of modesty. So that's really the, um, the language of learning. But now we're going to move to the bed, 
right? And the bed here is also a euphemism, right? The rabbis like to use the language of the bed, using the bed, right? For what we might call more crassly, right, sexual relations. And here the rabbis are saying, you know what? If someone comes over to you and asks you some sort of explicit question about your sexual relationship with your partner, and they just assume that you're going to tell them the truth because you're obligated to tell them the truth, no, you're not, okay? Somebody asks you a question like that, you could simply lie. You don't have to yell at them. You don't have to, you know, certainly don't have to tell them the truth. You could just change your language, right? You are allowed to preserve your privacy, okay? So the first example is humility. And the second example is privacy, right? But I think what's so important about both of these examples is that the examples that we have here, the first two and two out of three, are examples where the lying is not only, right, clearly lying, it's also lying that's to the benefit of the liar, right? So we were probably pretty comfortable with the idea that maybe we were allowed to lie to preserve someone else's dignity, right, or to help somebody else feel better. But we're here we're being pretty explicit that you are allowed to lie for yourself. Right? And I think here there's also an implicit critique of the kind of person who's going to ask a question that is going to force someone else to lie. Right? What kind of class person is going over to a rabbi and asking her about her relationship with her partner? Like, that's insane. But there is this sense of, oh, no, well, now that I'm on the spot, I kind of have to tell the truth. And the response is, well, actually, no, you don't. Right? The onus was on that person to be polite and to be respectful, once they're not being polite and respectful, you don't have to respond to them with the truth, right? They don't get to put you on the spot. As a side note, one of my um, side hobbies is coaching people, particularly women, um, in the art of saying no, which uh, not that I'm so artful in the way that I say no, but I do say no a lot. And I believe um, in the ability to say no. And, you know, we live in a society where it's like very easy to reach out to people. You could Anybody can find my email address within three seconds, right? And so then they could ask me anything. And if I'm not in a place where I feel like I can say no, right, just the fact that you feel the license to ask, then I feel put upon, right? And I think that what's, what's being clarified here is if the ask isn't legitimate, you don't have to say yes, right? If the question isn't appropriate, you don't have to tell the truth. And to flip it, right, to What's really a fair approach here? Maybe a fair approach here is to preserve yourself and not necessarily to give everything to the person who puts upon you. Okay. But the last example, Ushpiza, is a case where it's not really there to help you, but it's really there to preserve someone else's feelings. Um, you know, somebody says to you, how did you sleep last night when you are their guest? And the truth is that they gave you the worst bed. Their kid was crying the whole night. You had a terrible night. But you know that if you tell them this was the worst night of sleep of my life, they're going to feel terrible. And what have you gained from that? Nothing. Right? This person is doing you a favor. They're asking you some polite small talk question. You just have to say, oh, I slept really well. Thank you so much for having me. That's what you have to say, even though it is not true. Okay? Um, all of these are examples where the assumption is that the truth is going to be inappropriate, the truth is going to be painful, the truth is going to be embarrassing, and therefore, the truth goes out the window. We simply habitually 
lie about these things. Um, right, and I think that sort of the, the notion of avizi rabbana, that this is the practice of the rabbis, this is habitual, there is some way in which this is prescriptive, but there's also a way which, in which this is descriptive, where we all have things about which we habitually lie, even if we're rabbis. And I think there's a way in which part of what's going on here in this Gemara is saying, why don't we all just acknowledge that and then work from there? Okay, so the sense of acknowledging um, the lies that we're already telling and maybe can't get out of telling, that's going to come up a little bit later. Okay, the Gemara and Yevambot. So here Rabbi Ila'a is quoting Rabbi Al-Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon. Right, this is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, not necessarily known for mildness. And his son is also not known for mildness. But nevertheless, right, they are imparting this lesson, which is essentially about knowing your role and sort of reading the room and sometimes being mild. Just as it is a mitzvah to say what will be heard, so too it is a mitzvah not to say what won't be heard. Okay, so if somebody is going to be receptive to what you're going to tell them, then you're obligated to tell them, hey, you really shouldn't have done that. Actually, here's the truth, etc., etc. But if they're not going to be receptive to it, keep it to yourself, right? If you don't have anything that other people are willing to hear, don't say anything at all in a version of the kindergarten adage, okay? And then Rabbi Abba said, actually, it's worse than it's not, that it's a mitzvah to not say it. If you do say it to someone who's not prepared to hear it, then you are liable. As it says, don't rebuke a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. You have to know your audience. Some people are the kind of people who are really interested in hearing what you have to say, either because of who they are or because of your relationship with them. And for them, it's a mitzvah. Tell them what they need to hear. But if you're telling someone who doesn't have that relationship with you or doesn't want that relationship with you, some, you know, thing that you feel like they need to know, actually you're liable, right? You're liable for that person hating you. You are the one who overstepped your bounds. And we're continuing with another statement, same chain of transmission, Rabbi Eli in the name of Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shema. It is permissible to alter the truth for the sake of peace. Right now we're going even further. First we were saying, you don't have to supply the truth. You can keep the truth to yourself. And now we're saying, actually, you can supply a lie. Okay, if you're in a situation where it is going to be for the sake of peace, devar hashalom, as it is written, your father commanded before his death, saying, say this to Yosef, please bear the wrongdoing of your brothers and their sin. Okay, so we're at the end of Sefer Breshi, and Yosef is reconciling with his brothers. Yaakov has passed away, and the brothers are like, oh, um, actually, your father said something to us. Weird that you didn't hear it, but here's what he said. You should totally reconcile with your brothers. They're great. Okay, extremely unreliable narrators of this very self-serving statement. Okay, but since, and, but here it's being framed as Devar HaShalom, right? That we have two options here. We can stay mad at each other, or we can sort of fabricate that our father really wanted us to reconcile, and this lie is being used to sort of patch over some difficulties. Right, and you'll notice that um, 
there's there's only a certain amount of lying right that the, that the brothers can do. They're not lying and saying. Your father said that we're not at fault. Your father said it was all just a misunderstanding. Your father said to forgive them because they didn't do anything wrong. Right? There's a limit. The brothers did generate this conversation that, at least according um, to Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, never happened. Okay, but the content of what they're saying is also a form of apology, right? Because the statement that they're constructing for their father that they're placing in their late father's mouth calls what they've done a wrongdoing, right? Calls what they've done a sin. Okay. And now we're going to move to this to the house, the students of Rabbi Ishmael, who taught greatest peace, Gadol HaShalom, because the Holy Blessed One altered the truth for its sake. Okay. It's not just Yosef's brothers who are a little bit shady when it comes to the truth in the first place, who were saying they can continue to um, alter the truth as long as it's um, going to be for the sake of peace. But even God, God's self kind of fudges things a little bit when it's for the sake of peace, right? And the example is that slight disparity between Sarah's own reaction when she hears that she and her husband, her elderly husband, are about to bear a child and the way God re reports it, God sort of conveniently leaves out the element of Sarai mocking Abraham and just sort of leaves the part where she's more self-deprecating. Okay, so God is constructively reporting events in a way that is going to keep Abraham from getting mad at Sarah unnecessarily. Okay, um, and so again, right, what we have here, just like in source number C in Baba Mitzia, we have a an equation, really, of the lies that you tell for your own sake and the lies that you tell for other people. In either situation, if it's necessary for the sake of shalom, if it's necessary for the sake of discretion, etc., it is considered to be either basic, like something that everybody does and you shouldn't feel bad about, or maybe good, right? And maybe it's even something that God, God's self, is modeling for us. Who is going to benefit from God reporting to Avraham what Sarah said verbatim. Not Sarah, not Avraham, and not God, because we know that people don't always treat the messenger in the best way. Okay, so there's just this sense of, don't make it difficult. It's difficult enough already for the sake of peace. Let's just let it slide. Um, and I didn't put this source on the sheet, but just now I'm being reminded of um, the conversation around Aaron being a Rodif Shalom and the image of him in Avot Rabbi Natan being a Rodif Shalom, someone who is chasing after peace. And the description of him is like pretty simple that he is lying, right? He knows that, uh, let's call them, I don't know, Shmuel and Shmupi, right, are in a big fight. And Shmuel and Shmupi do not forgive each other. But Aaron doesn't want them to be in a fight anymore. So, so, so Aaron goes to Shmupi and he says, Shmuel was just talking to me about how bad he feels and vice versa. Okay. Aaron lying, lying. Okay. But that's what it means according to this story to be a Rodif Shalom that you kind of are being diplomatic. You're kind of finessing the truth. You're supplying that maybe represent these people's deeper wills, but isn't actually a factual recreation of what happened. 
Okay, so here we have, right, just to, just to summarize where we've come so far, we looked at the psukim where it seems that the prohibition of lying, at least the hard prohibition on lying, is when it's going to cause real, actual harm. And then we said maybe that opens up the possibility that lying is kind of situational. It's bad when it causes bad things, and it's fine or maybe even good when it causes good things. We saw the debate between the Chazon Ish and Rav Dessler about whether or not that's really the case. Okay, and then we've moved on to these two rabbinic passages where it seems pretty clear that lying for a constructive purpose, even if the person who's going to be served is the liar themselves, is considered to be acceptable, so acceptable that God, God's self is getting in on the game. Okay. Um, the next source that we're going to look at um, is maybe one of the better known sources around being gentle with the truth, not necessarily saying the most obvious thing that comes to mind, okay? So the rabbis ask a question, which you may not have even known was a question. The question is, how do we dance before the bride? Now, I always wish that the response to how do we dance before the bride is one person is like, oh, you do shaft at Mayim, and the other person is like, oh, you do the floss, like from that video game. Okay, but the way that the rabbis are dancing seems to have nothing to do with dancing and only to do with talking very rabbinic, okay? So the question is, how do you dance? And the answer is, here's what you say, okay? Not necessarily the most athletic response. Okay, so Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, our favorite interlocutors, unsurprisingly argue about this as well. Beit Shammai say, Kala Kimot Shehi. We praise the bride as she is. We're just going to call it like we see it. You're going to walk into the wedding hall. The bride has been, you know, I don't know, a lot of her relatives are kissing her. And you're like, wow, your makeup's all messed up. Okay, that's Beit Shammai. And Beit Hillel says, well, you're going to come in and you're going to say to the bride, you look amazing. You are the best person. I'm so happy for you. Okay, so Beit Shammai is coming in, truth bomb, and Beit Hillel is coming in with the same script, right, that Beit Hillel is going to be sharing with everyone. And Beit Shammai say to Beit Hillel, okay, but like, not every." level with me, right? Not every bride is beautiful and pious, right? We've got our disabled brides, which at least according to Beit Shammai is considered to be less desirable. I'm sorry to say that. It's not my own personal belief, right? If she were lame or blind, would we say to her, the bride is, we're on the next page, beautiful and pious? She's not beautiful according to certain conventional standards. You don't really think she's beautiful. Why are you there and telling her that she's beautiful. The Torah said, here's our phrase that pays, midvar sheker tichak. You're not supposed to be lying. So why are you lying? And then Beit Hillel say to Beit Shammai, okay, okay, let's leave brides aside. According to you, if one has purchased something bad from the market, okay, it's not a great analogy, a mekach ra min hashuk, should we praise his purchase or disparage it in his eyes? Okay, and now it's important to know that in the story, Rebid Hillel is imagining you've already bought the thing. Okay, this is not a case where someone's like, hey, should I buy this, you know, car? 
and you happen to know that that car is a lemon, and you should say no. This is a case where I've already bought the car, can't return it, and I'm loving it, right? I'm driving around town. You don't tell me, oh, I see that you're really happy with that car, but you should know that I looked under the hood at that car, and it's a lemon. You just don't do it, right? You just tell them, I'm so happy for you. This is so great. That car is going to, you know, going to be amazing. May it serve you in good health. Right, one would say that he should praise it in his eyes. That's what you're supposed to do. From here, the rabbi said, okay, and we are learning from Beit Hillel, that a person's perspective should always be mixed with those of other people. Me'urevet im habriot, where the language of me'urevet, I think is very interesting here, right? The language of being mixed, right? I think that here, that phrase gets us to Beit Hillel is essentially saying, you're just supposed to say what people expect you to say, right? To be Murevet im habriot is you're not sticking out. You're mixed in. You are just reading the script. You're not probing the truth value of the statements. You're just reading the script, right? And also the language of arev means to be like tasty or pleasant, right? Why do you want to ruin the wedding by telling the bride that she's ugly? Don't do that, okay? Just tell her that she's beautiful. What does it cost you? When you have this abstract principle of midvar sheker tirchak, you don't want to tell lies? Whatever abstract principle, don't be annoying, right? Don't make the bride cry at her wedding. How about, how's that for an abstract principle? Okay, so you can really see Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, just total opposite sides of the spectrum. Beit Shammai is saying, I can't count, just because it's a wedding doesn't mean I can lie. But Hillel's saying, yeah, really? You really think that your approach is a better approach? You can almost hear the sarcasm, right, coming out um, of the mouth of Beit Hillel. What the Maharsha does is, um, first of all, he resolves the question of, I thought we were talking about dancing. Okay, that's the first thing he does. But also what he does is he comes and he softens Beit Shammai and a little bit explains more of what's going on with Beit Hilo. So even though it's a little bit lengthy, um, I think it's worth, I think it's worth the effort. Okay, this means to describe the way one sings at the time of dancing. Okay, so the Maharshal says, don't worry, they're dancing. Okay, but as they're dancing, they're also singing. Like it says later, they sang before the bride. And it says that the song, according to Beit Shammai, is to praise the bride as she is. And the Tosvot explained, if she has a blemish, they would be quiet, or they would praise her for a beautiful trait that she did have. Okay, through the eyes of the Tosvot, we actually see Beit Shammai maybe being a little bit more sensitive than they seem at the beginning, and maybe being even more sensitive than Beit Hillel, because the bride knows what she looks like. The bride knows who she is. This example always makes me think of one of the most uh, traumatizing experiences of my childhood. I took piano lessons. It's not great. Um, and uh, I definitely was not good at memorizing pieces. When you're at the recital, you're supposed to do your pieces from memory. So I got on stage, I was probably like eight years old, nine years old, and I play like three notes. And then I'm that I got nothing, right? I'm a blank slate. So I stare at the piano for about as long as I can, praying that the notes are gonna come back. They did not. 
And so I did what most eight-year-olds would do in my situation. I ran off the stage crying. I think an appropriate reaction to the situation. The show must go on. I will no longer be in it. Um, but after the show, every single adult within a 10-mile radius came over to me to say what a gifted pianist I was, what a good job I did. I wanted to disappear and never see a piano again. I did not want to hear thousands of well-meaning adults lying to my poor crying face about what a gifted pianist I was, okay? And so I think that what Beit Shammai is getting to is like that exact problem, okay? This woman who doesn't think that her value lies in her appearance, she's maybe not that beautiful, but she's, I don't know, super smart or she's super athletic or she's got something else going on. If you recite for her the script of well, the ideal bride is this and you're the ideal bride and she knows that that's not true about herself, that lie is actually going to be doing way more harm than good. So according to the toast vote, the Beit Shammai would either sort of not say anything or they would just emphasize something else, not these standard qualities of beautiful and pious. Right? And how do the toast vote know that that's what, the toast, that's what Beit Shammai means? Is because, well, what's the alternative? Right? The alternative is so cruel as to almost be unimaginable. And we know, right, that it is forbidden to speak derogatorily even of a non-kosher animal. Okay, so the rabbis elsewhere notice that even though the Torah doesn't ostensibly, you know, throw out extra words, instead of referring to the animal as impure, they say the animal which is not pure, right, which is sort of like a long circuitous way to prevent them from saying something negative about this animal. Okay, so if we're not gonna call an impure animal impure, we're gonna call this nice girl on her wedding day ugly? No, right? It's impossible that Bechamai, that's what they mean. And it further appears to me that whether or not she has a blemish, they will not say either praise or disparagement. Rather, Bechamai would use that exact language, the bride as she is. Okay, so the Marashah comes and he says, well, actually, maybe, they got out of this by just saying, the bride is who she is. That's exactly what they would say. That is the sort of highest praise. You are who you are. Mazel tov, right? You are who you are. Meaning, just as she has found favor in her husband's eyes. Right? The wedding isn't about you and whether or not you think the bride is beautiful. The wedding is about the bride and the groom and whether or not they are going to be happy together. Okay, so you are supposed to refer to that when you are dancing before the bride. You're supposed to say, you, you're something that somebody chose, right? The bride as she is, she is a bride. And since it is forbidden to marry a woman unless he has seen her, right? We know that the man must think she's fine because he couldn't marry her if he hadn't seen her first. Okay. And Beit Hillel would say that one should enumerate her qualities, that she finds favor, and that is the bride is beautiful and pious. And Beit Shammai said, and if she is lame, etc. That is, that everyone can see that she's not beautiful and kind, and this is untrue. Okay, so Beit Shammai is saying, but there's a risk, Beit Hillel, to your approach. Because you're highlighting the disparity between what's expected for this woman and what she's actually displaying. And Beit Hillel responds, one who has made a bad purchase, etc., shouldn't he praise it in his eyes? Meaning, this is not false. 
since in his eyes the purchase is good. And Behillel is saying, why are you determining whether or not this bride is beautiful? This man thinks this bride is beautiful. This man thinks this bride is pious. When you say it, right, again, this goes back to Rav Dessler's um, uh, definitions of, of true and false. You're not supposed to be saying whether or not you think the bride is beautiful. You're supposed to be saying whether or not the uh, husband-to-be thinks the bride is beautiful. And we know that he thinks that she is. So when you say it, even though it's not your own personal opinion, right, you are reflecting the truth for them. So to hear, she is beautiful and pious in his eyes. Okay, we're not going to read the last five sentences. We're going to go for the last five lines. We're not going to go to the bitter end. Right? But I think that it's really important to see that Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, through the eyes of the Maharsha, are having a really significant discussion right, about what is the best way to make this bride feel valued on her wedding day. And the story which originally seemed like Beit Shammai is being explicit to the point of painful, a way that seems sort of crass. When you read it again, it's possible to see that actually they're the ones who are being sensitive. And Beit Hillel, who are assuming that we're just supposed to say the same thing to every woman, it's not really clear that they are being sensitive. But then you could also see the way in which, but they really believe that what they're saying is true because they think that every man believes about his wife, that she is pious and beautiful. Right? And so what's most important to understand about this story through the lens of the Maharsha is that even for Beit Shammai, the question isn't really about, is this true or is this not true? For them, even when we're talking about being more truthful, they are in favor of being more truthful because they think that being more truthful is ultimately more kind. Right. And I would say that, you know, in our own, you know, being in this kind of situation where we're not really sure, should we say the pat thing that everybody's saying or should we say something different? Should we depart from the script? Maybe it's not about us and whether we're Beit Shammai or Beit Hillel, but maybe it's about the person. Right. Is this the kind of person who really wants to know the truth? And therefore, they are going to smell that lie a mile away. They're going to resent that lie and they're going to resent you. In which case, tell them the truth, even if it's hard. Or are they the kind of person that just like wants to hear what they're supposed to hear? And I think, first of all, I think most people do find themselves in those camps. And also people shift, right, according to the situation, whether or not they want to hear just something nice or whether or not they really want to hear the harsh truth. When I was in summer camp, you know, there is a mirror, but there's a lot of competition for the mirror. So your friends become the arbiter of whether or not you should wear what you are wearing. This is happening in girls' bunks. Sorry for those of you who have not had this experience. For those of you who have had this experience, you know that I'm telling the truth. And there's a lot of, how do I look? How do I look? How do I look? And I, in my foolishness, used to tell people how they looked, right? At least according to me, actually, that skirt doesn't really fit you. That shirt has a stain. Um, you know, you actually wore the same outfit last week. It's going to look weird that you're wearing the same outfit. I would just tell people the truth. And that did not win me friends until I basically started walking around with a disclaimer. When everybody was starting to get dressed, I would say, I am happy to tell you the truth. If you do not want to hear the truth, do not ask me how you look. And some people would come to me specifically because they knew that I would tell them the truth. And some people avoided me like the plague because they knew that I would tell them the truth. Right. And so I think there's on the one hand, 
you know, are trying to read other people, right, which does seem to be in some way the success to figuring things out, whether you're supposed to go through a Beit Shammai approach or whether you're supposed to go through a Beit Hillel approach, right? But there's also a way that you can just um, ask someone, right? Um, I, this happens a lot in the realm of when people are complaining about a life situation, right? It's sort of helpful to say, hey, is this a conversation where you just want to dump everything that happens on me? Or is this a conversation where you want my advice? Because if you don't read that correctly, it can be really hurtful. And sometimes there's no way to read that correctly without actually asking explicitly what kind of conversation are we having here, right? So, and I would say that that advice, you know, really, to the extent that it's possible, really extends to these sorts of situations. See if you can get a feel from the person. See if you can get a feel from the situation. See if there's actually a way that you can ask for what the right approach is, um, because it's not clear, right? That Beit Shammai are being cruel and Beit Hillel are being kind or the other way around, right? It really does seem very specific, very situational. So we're at source A on the bottom of page three, where Rava is telling this, I think, fanciful story. Um, it reminds me of a movie called The Invention of Lying. And this movie was, in my honest opinion, not the best, okay? But the premise of the movie is very interesting for our conversation, where they're imagining a world where nobody knew how to tell a lie, and, you know, the first person who figures out that he can lie, right, and, and sort of what happens with that. Um, but the way that they imagine, right, the world without lying is really cruel, blunt, obnoxious world. Okay, that's the world without lying. And so here we have that world imagined by Rava. Rava said, at first I believed there was no truth in the world. One of the rabbis, by the name of either Tavut or Tavyumi, said that if you were to give him the entire universe, he would not go back on or change his work. He says, I'm an honest guy under all circumstances. Once I went to this place which was called truth. They never went back on or changed their words. This is all everybody in the first scenes of the invention of lying. And nobody there died before his time. Okay, so there's this kind of reward for being so truthful Everybody lives their full count of years. I married a woman from among them, and I had two sons with her. Right, So I thought, great, I don't lie. These people don't lie. It's a perfect match. I'll marry one of the women who live in this city. One day, his wife was sitting, and she was washing her hair. Okay, this is a nice euphemism, but she is not clothed. Um, her neighbor came and knocked on the door. Right, And the neighbor comes and says, hey, you know, is, is Mrs. Tavyubi home? And he thought, this is not good manners, but I shouldn't say she's in the shower, right? Because then the person's going to immediately imagine her in the shower, so that's not appropriate. So I'm going to just say. Um, so he told the neighbor that his wife was not home. He told a little non-truth. Technically, she is home, but she's naked. So I'm going to say she can't come to the door right now because she's not home. And then immediately, his two sons passed away. The townspeople came to him and they said to him, what is this? People in our town don't die young. So if your kids pass away, I mean, aside from that being a tragedy for you, it's also a tell. Now everybody knows that there's some sort of falsehood that is living in your house. 
So he told them what happened. He's like, listen, he wasn't going to tell her the truth. It was an innocent lie right, to protect my wife's dignity and privacy, which we know is a protected class of lie from some of the earlier sources that we saw. And they said to him, please leave from our place so that you did not invite death on these people. Now, what's amazing about this, right, is that the people of this place, they don't really say that what he's done is wrong. They just say that it's not compatible right, with their kind of extreme world, right? And he thinks of himself as somebody who doesn't lie. But then when push comes to shove, he does find himself in a situation where he thinks it's better um, to tell a lie rather than to tell the truth. And his, his children die as a consequence. Now, if he was living in a normal world where people sometimes didn't tell the truth, there would not have been a consequence for his son. Right? So there's this way in which this world where everybody tells the truth is incredible. Nobody dies before their time. There's this sense of almost impossible perfection of this place. But ultimately, it's not somewhere where people can live. Right? And so I, I don't know if this is exactly you know, what Rava is trying to communicate with the story. Right? But to me, it's like these people are not dying, but they're not living normal lives. Right, the price for this longevity, the price for this perfection is in some sense their humanity, is their ability to live as human beings in society with other human beings. Um, and so the, so we have this kind of fantasy world. There's this place, there's this town, Truthville, right, where nobody tells a lie and everybody lives basically until 120. But that's not actually our world. And the, um, the Mitrash and Rishit Rabbah in source B on page four says this explicitly. Rabbi Simon said, when God began to create the first human beings, the ministering angels assembled themselves in different sects and groups. The ministering angels start to debate. Some of them said he should not be created. I saw the prototype for man. It's not looking good. And some of them said, oh, I think it could be a fun project. Let's promote him. As it says, kindness and truth met. Justice and peace kiss. They touched. Kindness said he should be created. For he will do kind works. Okay, so we're sort of imagining these angels as embodying these qualities. So kindness said, yeah, let's make human beings. They are going to be nice. I like nice. Let's have some more kind people. Truth said, no, 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 no. He should not be created for he is entirely lies. Justice said, he should be created for he will do righteous works. And peace said, I don't think so. Right? He should not be created, for he is entirely strife. Okay? Now, both of these camps, the ministering angels who say, create humanity, and the ministering angels who say, don't create humanity, both of those camps are right. Okay? It is true that human beings do nice things. It is true that human beings are liars, right? It is truth. It is true that human beings do righteous works. It's also true that we fight with each other over nothing, 
often those very same righteous works. People are getting into huge fights in religious committees and synagogues everywhere over just how to do the right thing. Okay, so these ministering angels are, they're all right. Okay, and so God has to figure out of these two sides, which are both right, how am I going to uh, go forward? Am I going to create humanity or not? So what did God do? He took the truth and threw it to the earth. God said, I can't have both. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to jettison truth for the sake of the ability to create humanity. Um, as it says, The ministering angel said before God, master of the universe. But wait a minute. You love truth. You are truth, right? It says elsewhere, You are truth. How could you throw yourself overboard? How could you reject truth? And so God says, Truth. Like a piece of garbage. So what did he do? He said, Let truth be raised from the earth. As it says, Emet that truth will grow from the earth. I don't want to shock anybody, but I'm not sure that this story literally happened. Okay? I think that maybe, maybe there is a lesson to be conveyed from the story. It is not actually a historical event of what happened in the creation of humanity. But essentially we have this tension of human beings doing great things but also being really problematic. And God says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm going to ignore all the elements about them that are problematic. I'm going to take harsh truth and I'll throw it out. But then God is not being true to God's self. And that's a problem for God. So then we have truth then growing back up from the earth. right? And, the, and it's unclear exactly like what this truly means. Um, but in the context of this class, I'm going to suggest that there's a kind of absolute truth, a kind of harsh truth that God can't maintain and at the same time create human beings. So there's an ethereal, abstract, divine truth that is incompatible with humanity. But there's a different kind of truth. There's an earth truth. There's like a groundedness in reality there's a practical truth. There's a good truth that grows from the earth. And that's what we end up with. And in some sense, our recognition of ourselves as not angels, but as people, also includes a recognition of ourselves as people who are not fundamentally truthful in this abstract, strict sense. But that doesn't mean that we can just throw the whole project of truth overboard and then nothing matters. What we really want to do is come a little bit closer, right, to Rav Dessler's vision of truth and come to the point where we have the kind of truth that grows out from the earth, right, a constructive truth, a truth that is planted, a truth that is human, and ultimately a little bit messy. Okay, so I think that's what's happening in this image of Breshit Rabbah. God could have created Truthville. But God doesn't want to create truthful. He actually prefers the way that our goodness and our not goodness are kind of intertwined. And it's up to us 
right, to kind of push that in the right direction and to make a truth, a human truth that is valuable and is practical and is um, generative, right, this image of the truth growing from the earth. Um, now, in our last few minutes, we're going to look at two sources which are designed to give us a little bit of pause, right? We don't want to go overboard and be totally lie happy. I went to the shear with Dina. Well, I stayed home on my couch and I watched the shear with Dina. And she said, I could lie whenever I feel like it's necessary. And it's always better to lie. That is the conclusion that one could take. But I would caution you against taking that to the extreme. Um, and I really do want to end with these two sources that point to the danger of lying. Um, so, and for some reason, both of these stories have to do with like beans and lentils and peas. Don't know how it happened. It's just, there's some, there's some theme of, of legumes. Okay. Shabi Yashur ben Hananya said, once I was eating at an innkeeper's and she made me beans on the first day. Um, and right, the way that these, it's a little bit like an old timey saloon, right? There's a restaurant in the bottom and then there's also rooms to let. So the restaurants in the, in the community are essentially inns. So, right. So he goes and he goes to the innkeeper and she makes him this plate of like delicious chocolate. He has the best beans. I eat them up completely. Just, you know, snorted them down. She did so on the second day. She's like, oh my gosh, Rabbi Yashul Ben-Halaya likes my beans. I'm going to make him beans again. I ate them up completely. They were delicious beans. But then comes the third day. She ruined them with salt. All of a sudden, these beans, not so tasty, okay? As soon as I tasted them, I pulled my hand away. I was like, mm, uh, thanks, but no thanks for these beans. She said, Rabbi, why aren't you eating, right? These are my world-famous innkeeper beans. Uh, he said to her, I already ate. You're hungry. Uh, you know, I really appreciate that you gave me these beans, but like, I, I actually am full. And then she says to him, really? Well, then you should have pulled your hand away from the bread. Okay, right? So at the same time that he's lying to her and saying, I really wish I could eat these delicious beans. These beans are so delicious. Delicious, delicious. He's like shoveling bread in his mouth because he's starving, right? So at the same time that he's lying to her and telling her that he's not hungry, his other hand, right, is feeding himself bread. And, you know, I don't, I don't think we uh, all have to be as perceptive as this innkeeper to know that we do this all the time, right? Where we're not always so good, right, at keeping track of our lies because the, you know, the lies are something that we've invented and we have to sort of stay consistent with them. And that can be really challenging. There's actually something much easier about telling the truth. You don't have to keep track of the truth. Right? The truth just is what it is. Um, and so Rabbi Shul ben Hananya, in his attempt to spare the innkeeper's feelings by telling her that he's not hungry, I think actually made things worse. Because not only did she know that the food was bad, she saw him like not respecting her enough to tell her the truth um, and lying to him about it. Okay. I do always wonder about whether she um, ruined them with salt on purpose or not. We'll never know. Okay. But speaking of ruining food on purpose, we're going to look at our final source from the Gemara and Yivamot, where we have Rav's wife, 
was always tormenting him. You know how it is, wives these days. Okay, so Rav and his wife did not get along. That is just how it was. How did this manifest itself? Classive, passive aggression, right? Make me lentils, he would say, and she would make him peas. He would say, can I have some peas? And she would say, sure, honey, lentils, okay? When his son, Chia, grew up, he would reverse it for her. So his father would say, oh my gosh, boy, do I have a hankering for peas today, okay? And so then Chia would go to his mother and say, Abba said that he really wants to have lentils. And so his wife, right, Chia's mother, would then give him peas, and then it would end up that Rav got exactly what he wanted through Chia's subterfuge. And Rav said to him, wow, your mother is improving. She finally figured out how to comply with my order. She's making me the lentils or the peas that I asked for. And Chia, in a tremendous display of, yes, just shake your head, lack of strategy, let's say, says, oh, you know, my mother is just as horrible as she always was. I am the smart one, right? I am the one who is reversing the requests for her. I'm helping her out. I'm jujitsuing her. Rav said, this is as people say, that which emerges from you will teach you reason. Like, he's like, wow, yeah, pretty smart. Why don't you look her to me to lie to my wife habitually for all the years that we've been married? Oh, right, because of this other pasuk in Yirmiyahu, lamdu l'shanam um, daber sheker, right? They taught their tongues to speak misleading lies. The reason why I don't lie to my wife every day is because I don't want to be someone who lies all the time. And, you know, for in the short term, right, what you've accomplished is you've gotten me the meal of my dreams. But what you've done to your character, right, is you've kind of made yourself someone who lies to their own mother for the sake of peace. You know, and then when you put it that way, you could see why Rav never did it himself. He doesn't want to become a liar. Right? He's willing to pay the price um, by not getting the food that he wants. You know, and so I think these, these last two uh, cautionary tales really should stay with us, right? The first being that it's actually really hard to lie. And if you're going to do it, you should be strategic about it and you should be paying attention so that you don't get caught up because people actually are okay with being lied to as long as they don't know it, right? But once you start messing up, then people are going to be justifiably pretty upset, right? And the second is that we should have a default orientation towards truth. Right? We should be trying to tell the truth whenever it's possible, whenever it's right, defaulting to the truth. Because if we don't default to the truth, then instead of becoming people who are really sensitive to the needs of others and sort of designing our way of speech and being really sensitive to what needs to be done in the moment, we're actually just going to be liars. Um, and that's a real risk um, that comes with this dispensation. Midvar Shaker Tirchak, run away as far away from falsehood as possible, is a very safe approach in a lot of ways. And taking the approach that I've articulated tonight of selectively deciding when we're not going to um, entirely tell the truth, 
um, I think is something that we need to do with selectivity and sensitivity and caution, even as it might be the wisest and kindest approach. Thank you so much, Dina. A lot of people have been asking some, some que uh, qu questions around this idea of of creating behavior, of trying to train ourselves to be truthful, and this idea of oh, if we if we compromise, then are we, like are we compromising more than it seems? And so, I understand you're trying to get there somewhere in between that, but how do you just kind of think about that? You know, we all just want to try harder, and also I want to ask, kind of connected to that, because it's it can be so subtle and so nuanced. How do you go about? Teaching this to our to children, to our other, how do you go about influencing ourselves and others in this with this kind of behavior? When you have a child and that child has a sibling and that child hits their sibling and you say, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry like you mean it. And you know and they know that nobody's sorry and nobody means it. Okay, what you are doing to your children from a very young age is saying, sometimes you just need to say what needs to be said in order to patch up the relationship. Maybe you'll feel sorry later, but like for right now, what your sister or your brother ne needs to hear from you is the words, I'm sorry, sounding as sincere as possible. Okay, so I want to answer these questions by saying, we're actually doing this already both in the sense of um, just social conventions that we you know, don't even think about. The, the easiest example is you're having a terrible day. You pass by a colleague in the hallway. They ask you how you're doing, you say fine. Because it's not appropriate to dump on your colleague like they are your therapist. And it's also not helpful for you to spill out everything that is happening to you on the inside in the hallway at work. Right, so I think that there's some element of this question um, is a little bit artificial, not to, not to criticize the people asking the question, because it is a good question, um, but I, I think it's really helpful for us to understand the extent to which we are already always doing this on some very low level. And what I would like us to start doing is being more strategic and being more aware of when we're doing it and how we're doing it. Because we're kind of by just blindly saying we're fine when we're not fine, but telling people harsh truths when probably we should tell them uh, a lie, right? And we're kind of casually lying when it serves us and not lying when it serves others. We're just doing this by nature. We're doing this by habit. We're doing this by rote. Uh, my goal here is by giving you official license in my capacity um, as someone who is not able to give you official license, right? By giving you official license to say, you can lie when it's appropriate, right? What I'm, what I'm hoping this encourages you to do is to ask yourself, when am I lying? And when should I be lying? And maybe some of the places where I'm not lying, I actually should be. And some of the places where I'm habitually lying and not even noticing and not even thinking about it are places where maybe I could be more truthful because I'm trying to be more strategic around this question in general. And I do think, right, that this is something that we have to grow into, right? You're not going to teach a child, you know, at the age of six 
Rav Dessler's opinion that like truth and falsehood is just a, it's an, it's a mirage. And the only thing that matters is the will of God. They're obviously not ready to handle that. But I think it's also helpful for us to recognize the ways in which we do model lying for our children and our students. And we do teach them explicitly that sometimes they're supposed to lie. Say thank you, kid is not grateful. Tell Bubby you love them, kid is not feeling love for Bubby. Right? We do it all the time. I just think that we have to keep on doing it in a way that's age appropriate um, without completely eroding um, the value of telling the truth, which um, is also obviously an extremely important value. So we got a couple of questions that, that say something along the lines of, I'm interested that the lies in some of these texts are to women about if they're pretty or not, if their food tastes good or not. It's about men and whether men can lie to women in their myth. And then someone else asked something along the same lines of like, is this a lesson that has to be internalized in different ways? Yeah, I definitely did not notice that, which says something about me and my being used to rabbinic texts. I, I want to push back a little bit on that notion because I think, like, say, for example, the first text we saw where there's someone who's lying about learning, right, or someone who's lying about their sex life with their partner, I actually think that the rabbis are assuming, at least in that context, right, that it's a learned colleague asking another learned colleague, which in their society would both be men. So it's true that in the stories where we have, like, the more fleshed out characters, there do seem to be more women on the receiving end of lying. If I had to proffer some explanation for this, I don't think it's impossible to say that there is a sense in which women both like textually, and I think probably in a lot of ways, you know, in our own lives, are sometimes a little bit more attuned to needing to smooth things over socially. And the men in these stories are the ones who need to learn the lesson, right? So there's one way of reading this, which is like, oh, they're duping the women, right? The women have no agency. And that's why the stories are all about men lying to women. If that's the way you want to read this trend, I can't tell you that that's wrong. But I think there's also a possibility, right? That it's the men who in these stories who kind of need to learn that lesson, who might be more disposed, at least according to the authors of these stories, to not inherently get that like sometimes you just say what you're supposed to say and you're not trying to be kind of obtusely straightforward and honest. Again, I, I don't want to trot out all of my gender stereotypes, but the example that I gave of, you know, someone sharing their bad day with their, you know, partner or their friend or their spouse and then the spouse not realizing that they're not supposed to be giving advice and they're not supposed to be fixing a problem. This is like a classic thing, you know, a Mars Venus that, you know, women are complaining about about their spouses. I don't know if it's actually breaking down on those gender lines, but even in our own supposedly modern society, right, we have that gut sense of like, well, that's really a problem that men have more than women, even though just hearing myself say that just makes me want to throw up. So I really, I don't stand behind it. I'm just offering it as a possible um, way to account for that trend, which is interesting and I really haven't thought about before. The, uh, the difference between a, between a private exchange, you know, a lot of the, a lot of tonight courses centered around private exchanges and matters of public leadership, policy making, 
lying by community leaders or something like that? Is it should we approach that those those situations differently? What I want to say is that you have to ask the same questions when you're a public official. You have to ask the question of is the story that I'm telling serving me or serving my constituents? I think often when we find politicians in lies, what we are finding them in is self-serving lies, not public serving lies. I think they also have to ask the question of like, how much can the public handle, right? Do they actually want to hear the truth? And I think, you know, just in our very recent history, I think a lot of people felt like the CDC did not appropriately calibrate how much information the public could handle and they they used more expedient advice than actually, you know, perfectly scientifically accurate advice, and it backfired. Um, but it's not clear to me that it always would backfire. You know, they happen to find themselves in a situation where they made the wrong call on that. Um, so I don't really think that you have to say um, that it's different for public policy than it is for private individuals. But I will say for those of you who are, you know, interested in lying in public, I don't really recommend it um, just because there's going to be a lot more fact checkers, right, than there are people um, not telling the truth. Um, but the element where I do actually feel very strongly is that there seems to be some sense uh, that if you're like a, if you're considered a public individual, that you have no right to privacy. And if somebody asks you a question, you absolutely have to just share everything about yourself and about your family. I don't really see the basis for that. I don't think people become public figures and then are no longer actual people. And if, you know, if you're a politician and someone asks you a private question about your family and you don't want to tell the public, I don't see any reason why you should have to tell the public. It's not our business. And we are in a, in a culture where it's like, no, if you're a public person, I have the right to know everything about you. I don't think that's a fair price to make somebody pay for being a public servant or for being famous for any other reason. The, tr the idea of truth in today's culture and society is kind of up for grabs. Um, you know, we're living in what, whatever, whatever, however, whatever phrase you want to use to describe it, fake news, post-truth. And I'm, I'm seeing like, and social media, and of course, social media and the way that plays into, the way that plays into truth. The, the question I want to ask is, do you think there's, do you think that the, that reality in, should encourage us to be the weight on the other side, that to some extent we actually have to be more strict with the truth today, today? because it's under attack in some sense? Yeah, I think that your question really boils down to um, what we need to be careful about when we look at Rav Dessler's approach, where he says, well, there's no such thing really as truth and falsehood. That's for children. And actually what there is is what's the will of God and what's not the will of God, right? And you could see someone really saying um, some pretty outlandish things um, because they think that doing so is the will of God and sort of and thereby eroding, right? Our sense of factual and not factual. And so here's where I would really want to say, this class was about speaking non-truth for the sake of something that is higher interpersonally, 
I don't want to divulge this about you. I don't want to divulge this to you, et cetera, et cetera, which is really a completely different question from, you know, there's no such thing as truth about the natural world. There's no such thing about truth as truth about medicine. It's all just your opinion, do your research, right? All of that is actually not really right connected to this question because we haven't gotten to the point where we're saying you can lie because there's no such thing as truth. What we're saying is specifically interpersonally, which is not, you know, the realms where often the erosion of truth that you're talking about is happening. So first of all, it's not everything where you can just lie, lie, lie because it seems like fun. No, it actually has to be interpersonal. And, right, it has to be for a specific, articulatable, positive value. Not because you don't care whether or not what comes out of your mouth is true or false, or because you think that true or false are just, you know, outmoded categories. This isn't about saying um, the truth and false are outmoded, but rather that sometimes false is the right path to choose, or a version of false is the right path to choose, or sometimes a version of false is the more true path in a certain different sense. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode with additional editing by David Chabinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you. Mm-hmm.